Excellent. Okay, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom, wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marvelled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God. Thank you, Hintai. Thank you so much for uh, reading for us. And uh, let me just pray once more before uh, I... Uh, I expound this passage. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we are wholly and completely dependent on you and on your spirit. We ask that as we study your word, we will realize that we're not simply studying a literary text that is dead as it's captured black words on a white page, but that we would know that this is the very word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit and that who we encounter on these pages is no one less than the creator of the universe the Lord Jesus himself is being presented to us in this passage and we ask that through your spirit you will lift up our gaze so that we will see him we will see the wonder uh, of his presence amongst us as human beings and we will marvel, marvel at his grace, stooping down and showing himself to us in this way. We ask that your love will grip our hearts as we study this passage this morning and that we will find ourselves melted, uh, surrendered, in awe, not shocked but astonished at your grace. We ask that you would in this way come to, to assure us of your ever-abiding love for us, the people that you've made in your image. We are precious to you, each and every one of us, as we listen to the stream. We can say it unequivocally. God loves us. You love us, each and every one, as we follow the stream. You love us. Please, Father, would we, would we see you coming to us through your word this morning and surrender ourselves to you? Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um, I just need to get my notebook out. Um, and then I'd like to start by giving a little bit of a structure as we discuss this passage. But the structure will only follow after my introduction. Because I think the structure will only make sense once I've given you a bit of an introduction. Uh, perhaps uh, you've been following this series with us in Mark's Gospel. And you would have seen... Uh, that Jesus um, has been moving out, ministering to people ever since he's been baptized by John the Baptist. 
uh, after his baptism, he, he, is, uh, he goes out into the desert where the spirit uh, was, uh, was testing him. Uh, but the angels there were ministering to him. And then when he comes back from his temptation in the desert, immediately we hear that Jesus says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he proclaimed the gospel of God saying, Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus' ministry is a preaching ministry. And from that moment onwards, Jesus' preaching ministry starts. And his preaching ministry is accompanied by disciples. Those are the ones that he calls immediately in chapter 1. These disciples and by miraculous healings uh, and, uh, and liberations of demon-possessed men. Uh, and even rising, rising others from the dead. It is accompanied by the miraculous. This is Jesus' ministry. Now, people are forced to respond to this Jesus, and we have encountered a number of responses to Jesus. There are the individuals, and we've looked at uh, Jairus, particularly last week, and the lady who has been bleeding for many years, and her response to this Jesus, and it was to cry for mercy. It was a cry for help to this Jesus, and it was an act of belief in this Jesus. But the people that have taken the, the most of the airtime to this point are, are the two groups it's the the jewish leaders as they come and they reject jesus because they say he is he is wicked he is doing these things and he has this authority by the power of the devil himself uh, and, and they were they were the one group and then there's the other group his family his family that you might remember came in chapter three they came to jesus and they said to him and have a nice tea uh, you've just got to sit down there's something wrong with you. You're out of your mind. And that seems to be the two responses to Jesus, except for the individual responses of those that we've seen. Uh, these two groups, the people that said Jesus is thoroughly wicked, he's bad, and there's those that said he's out of his mind, he's, he's mad. Those are the two groups. So, so we, we remember how his family came, and they said he should come home. Jesus didn't go home. In fact, uh, everything uh, just got a little bit more heated since that moment. Uh, Jesus continued to minister. In fact, we see that he moves out of the mainly Jewish region around the Sea of Galilee. He crosses over. Uh, that's the night that the storm erupts and Jesus rebukes the storm and the wind. And then he arrives in Gentile country, the Decapolis, place of the ten cities. Uh, and that is where the man from Gennesaret, the demon-possessed man, comes to Jesus. And Jesus drives the demons out into the pigs, 2,000 pigs crashes into the sea and Jesus nearly crashes the economy of the Decapolis, ruining their uh, lucrative farming business over there. And he's asked to leave and he leaves. The man, of course, asked to come with Jesus. Jesus says, you stay. You tell them what I've done for you. First gentle missionary in that region. But Jesus comes back. He comes back to the Jewish region. Uh, and then when he arrives, that's where Carl preached last week. He arrives and Immediately there, we've got Jairus, this high leader in the Jewish synagogue whose daughter is dead, uh, and the lady who is religiously unclean, who is desperate for healing. And they both, they both, are, uh, they both meet the miraculous power of the second person of the Trinity in Jesus as he heals and resurrects. But now Jesus goes home. He goes home to his hometown. 
it feels like he has sort of continued to deal with the religious leaders by continuing to preach and perform miracles. We've got a synagogue leader whose daughter is now alive. So it feels like Jesus is making inroads into that crowd. And now Jesus goes home. He goes to his hometown. And if you're reading this for the first time, as you read through the passage, you, you, you pick up what is actually going on as Jesus arrives. And you want to, you want to hope for the best. Imagine just hearing this for the first time. It's familiar. Jesus went away from there and he hometown okay that's a new location and his disciples followed him that's to be expected and on the sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue that was his practice he would arrive in a village and he would speak in their synagogue and many who heard him were astonished oh wow so far so good you think this is going great he's back in his hometown and he's making some inroads there perhaps he'll perform a healing and 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 crowds will start to gather and and they will do what they did in Capernaum where they just took Jesus and they didn't want him to go because he's the local magician He's a local healer, uh, and people are, are in awe of him. Perhaps this is what's going to happen. And so it's a clever device by Mark, who's learning from Peter, whose gospel he's writing down, Mark, to force us as we read it to ask ourselves, what will we do if Jesus grew up in our village? If Jesus was from our little village, a village of perhaps 500 people, and, and Jesus and his family was known to us, Jesus' trade was known to us, his brothers, his sisters, they were all known to us. And he's gone away and we've heard reports of his parents and so on that said he's a bit, he's a bit strange. And now he arrives and, um, and, and he comes and as people see him arriving in this tiny little village, he, he has a troop of disciples. So it must mean he's now a rabbi because he's got people following him. And, and as he and his troop of disciples come closer you look at him and you think, I know Jesus, I, I know Joseph, I know Simon, I know James, I, I know his sisters, I know his mom. We're not sure about his dad, did he pass away, is he still on the scene? Uh, but I know them, and I, here he comes, yeah, it's Jesus, yeah, that's him, that's no question about it. And yeah, he's a rabbi, there's disciples with him. But what will I make of this Jesus? What will I make of this Jesus as he goes into the synagogue? What will I make of this Jesus? How will I view him? How will I understand who he is? Familiarity, it says, breeds content. Could this be the case that your familiarity with Jesus would have stopped you from seeing the second person of the Trinity, the incarnate God in the flesh in front of you? Or will you have, uh, will you have fallen down at his feet and said, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. This is a familiar picture. Now, Hinta, if you can quickly go back to the slides, I quickly want to show this is a, a ridiculous picture. I can, I can be cheeky and I can, um, I can ask you, and you've seen this. This picture has been around for 140 years, so there's nothing new about this picture. For those of you who see it the first time, if I could, I could make a, I could, I could, I could ask open-ended questions like this. I'd say, what do you see? Is it a person or an animal? So let me ask Ruben, what do you see, a person or an animal? You can choose a person or an animal. Okay. But, okay. Uh, Rachel, what do you see? A person or an animal? If you see, you see a person, okay. Do you see, what age is this person? Do, would you say this person is above 50 or under 50 years of age? Is it an old person or a young person that you see? Pardon? A younger person is what you see, okay. Timothy, have you seen this picture before? No. If I suggested to you 
that there is a young lady in that picture. Can you see the young lady? Yeah. Okay. You can only see the young lady. But now let me challenge you. If I suggested to you, I'm making a suggestion, that there is also an old lady in the picture. Can you see the old lady? Oh, I know this one, he says. <laughs> I could point out... I could point out her crooked nose, and the moment that you see her nose, you will see the old lady. Stefan, can you see the, Can you see both? It's so funny to look at the face of complete astonishment as they have no clue what they're looking at. I know many of us have seen this picture many, many times. Stefania is showing them. There's the mouth, and she has a scarf wrapped around her hair. And is that a feather that's in her hair? There, you can see. There we go. That's the moment, you know. So that's the point I wanted to make. Uh, the point I wanted to make is that, that as Jesus comes back from, from his ministry around the Sea of Galilee, people are, people are forced to, to make a decision about who this Jesus is. They've got to make up their mind who it is that they're looking at. Oh, but the power of suggestion is so strong. You see... Uh, before Timothy, and research have shown that younger people, on the whole, more easily see the young lady. And older people, on the whole, more, are more likely to see the older lady. Uh, but when I suggest to someone, if I suggest to you that there are two pictures in there, then you start to look for the other picture. Now here comes Jesus, he comes back, uh, and, and as people are trying to make sense of it, you're in the crowd with all the other people that's grown up with him, there's older people, there's relatives, there's friends, there's family members, they're all there. There's old clients that knew him as a carpenter. They're all there. And you're looking and you're listening. You're listening for suggestions about what am I supposed to make of this Jesus as I'm looking at him. And that's going to be my first two points in this passage this morning is, is how not to reject Jesus and how not to accept Jesus. Both stated in the reverse. I, I will first talk about that before I uh, take you to my, to my next point and then the final point. Let me first then talk about how not to reject Jesus. This phenomenon uh, is called groupthink, where people are, uh, are keen to suspend critical thought because as a group there is a desire for consensus. There's a desire for peace and for tranquility, for a quiet life. Uh, and so people sort of as a group start to murmur and say, what do they make of this person? And then they make up their mind. Uh, and we experience groupthink on many levels. Perhaps uh, we have experienced that more poignantly uh, when we still had shared workspaces or perhaps in the learning environment that you're in, uh, where you're close to other people. Now we're separated, working perhaps from home there is a chance for you to cultivate some individualist thinking and to make up your own mind uh, about things before you just follow suggestions that's being made to you. But, but how are you going to make sure that you don't reject Jesus and you don't reject Jesus in this way? Now, what do I say in this way? Why do I say in this way? You would have seen what these guys do. Uh, they reject Jesus in the strangest, the most small-minded possible way. I don't know if you've seen this, but, but look at it. Look at the great questions that they're asking. Verse 2, where did this man get these things? That's a brilliant question. Where? 
What is the wisdom given to him? Where? What? How are such mighty works done by his hands? How? And then who questions? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Jones, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? These are great questions they're asking. But the trouble is, can you see this, the trouble? They didn't wait for an answer. Verse 3 ends, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Please, if you're going to reject Jesus, don't reject him like this. That's my first point. And that is where you're asking great questions. Uh, you, are, uh, you are using your, all of your rational and intellectual capabilities to look at Jesus. But as you look at Jesus, and as you're asking, and as you're asking thoughtful and wise and good questions about who He is, instead of looking at what's being presented to you, instead of waiting for answers to those questions, you suspend critical thought and you listen to the suggestions. You listen to the suggestions of the culture around us. You listen to the suggestions of others around you. What am I to make of this Jesus? Well, let me find out what they make of Jesus. And they took offense. They took offense of Jesus. Now, now why did they take offense of Jesus? It is, uh, it is a, really a very sad and tragic story that's unfolding in front of us. Uh, and I'll show you some of the some of the horror of our sin and our sinfulness in this passage just now. But, but as I'm doing this, don't for a moment elevate yourself above this hometown because this is the question that's coming back to you. What do you make of this Jesus? Are you going to critically look at his word and take in what he is saying to you and, and, and listen to him as you're trying to make out what to make of him? Or are you also figuring out who Jesus is based on the suggestions around you? Here's what they do. Jesus comes. He begins to preach. He begins to preach to them, and they listen to him. Uh, and they are, by all accounts, astonished. That's the word that is used. They marvelled when they heard him. Uh, and then they start to ask these good questions. Where did this man get these things? That's their key question. Where did this man get these things? And it's not the where that is the key part, but it is this man. <laughs> You can hear the insinuation in that sentence. Where did this man get these things? What do they mean with this man? Well, they'll tell us in a moment who this man is. Who is this man? He's not this, the carpenter. The son of Mary. Now, there is the slur. There's the most insidious slur. And that, there is on display the way that groupthink work, group works when it's being weaponized to bring people down. By saying, son of Mary, they are reminding each other of the fact that there was always a question about Jesus' legitimacy. He's not son of Joseph. That's the way that every other son would have been introduced, even if the father was deceased. Son of Joseph. Son of the father. The father's name is the one that will be attached. But in this instance, no, 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 it is it's a little reminder that when Jesus was conceived, there was a question mark about this young Mary that was unmarried but pregnant. And they disappeared. They went to Bethlehem and we heard that they had the baby in a, in a manger somewhere. They came back years later, married and baby and so on, you know, so we don't ask any more questions. But the whole hometown was talking about this Jesus. 
Is this a way that they can discredit Jesus? And sort of keeping this uh, memory alive. And, and, and what's very important here is, is that they don't look into these things deeply and intentionally. If you're an innocent bystander, you'll just pick up the insidious slur and, and, and the suggestion will help you to make sense of who this Jesus is. And quickly you'll discredit him. Son of Mary. Carpenter. As you're standing in the crowd, you say, yeah, he did come back as a rabbi. That's right. It's quite interesting. Later, he comes back as a rabbi. And he has disciples. That's what proves that he's a rabbi. But look at his disciples. Have you seen them? These guys are fishermen. They're tax collectors. They are they're not learned, educated people. They have no standing in the world anywhere. He's a rabbi, but hmm, I'm not sure what kind of rabbi he is if he's got these sort of followers, these sort of disciples. So you're trying to figure out, what do I make of this Jesus? And if you're not a Christian, you're listening to this. You've heard my warning to you today. Do not look at the crowd around you as you're trying to make up your mind what to make of this Jesus. Look into these things for yourself. I'll come back to you in a minute. Let me just turn for a moment to my Christian brothers and sisters. How not to accept Jesus. Please don't accept Jesus in the way that you might be tempted to accept Jesus according to this passage where you're in the crowd and if the crowd was going the other way reminding them of the some of the prophecies about Jesus and then perhaps of the way that Jesus as a child went missing that one time and no one could find him eventually they found him in the temple and the Pharisees were asking all kinds of questions and he was clearly someone that was had, was were in some way special uh, and there's these murmurs that he is, he's really gifted. He's, he's, he's this person of, of great personal capability and, and wisdom. And he could be the brightest young thing that's ever come out of, uh, out of, uh, out of this hometown, Nazareth. Uh, and therefore, the, the wind changes. The story could have been written in, in that very way, where, where people just, Jesus comes back, and they quickly lift him up in the way that they did in Capernaum, where they say, oh, great, he's back. He's going to be our... Our homeboy, you know, carpenter to rabbi, you know, front front page of the of the Nazareth Daily News. And you accept him. Why? Well, not because you've looked into these things for yourself and you've had your heart turned inside out to, to submit to this man and worship him as God in the flesh. No, you do it because, well, the crowd thinks he's special, so I'll make him special. Children, you're growing up in Christian households. You have to understand that, that God demands of you to look into the truth of who Jesus is. And for you for yourself have to worship him as Lord. You have to submit to him as Lord. You, you can't hang on to the coattails of your parents as you pursue the Christian life. As you see the evidence about who Jesus is, as you hear his word being preached to you, you have to ask yourself, am I, am I following Jesus simply because the crowd around me is doing it? Or am I following Jesus because I've had my heart strangely warmed to see that this is the love of God in the flesh that's come to me? And I accept Jesus because I accept God because he loved me and he gave himself to me. That is how 
to accept Jesus, but don't accept Jesus on account of others around you. And that brings me to my second point, the, the sort of pivot point of this passage. It can easily be missed. Uh, and, um, and let me, I'm going to do something now that doesn't quite fit with the seriousness of what we're doing, but it will hopefully become clear why I'm doing it in a moment. If you just put on the screen again, and I'll show a little picture because I know Stefan loves pictures. And so um, there we've got the well-known Charlie Brown. You know, you've seen Charlie Brown before, and that is uh, no one other than uh, the little red-haired girl. And poor old Charlie is constantly in love with the little red-haired girl. She, she seldom appears in the comics, but, but Charlie is always looking out uh, for ways to impress little red-haired girl. Uh, and he's always uh, too scared to walk up to go and talk to her. And, uh, and she's always this enigma in his little cartoon that he's so worried at failing with, with baseball because little red-haired girl might see him and he's always distraught because he's failed and, and so on. So it's, it's just an ongoing thing. Now, what's very interesting is the creator of Charlie Brown, his name is Charles Schultz. Charles Schultz. And, uh, and the name of this uh, lady that uh, is actually represented by little red-haired girl was uh, a lady that worked in the office with them. She was an assistant in the office where the cartoons were drawn. And she happened to have red hair. Her name was Donna Mae Johnson. And uh, he was secretly in love with her. And uh, he was always sort of building up the energy, the strength to go and talk to her and ask her out. And uh, by the time that he basically got the energy, the courage to walk up to her, uh, she handed him a little envelope to invite him to... So he missed the chance. And so unrequited love is what shaped the story of Charlie Brown from that moment on. He pursued her, but she wasn't interested. She was involved with someone else, or she was interested in someone else. Okay, take that picture away. I'm now going to talk about that in a completely different, different way. I don't, I, I want, the only reason I'm doing this, I, I did that, is because I, I wanted to bring to mind to you just this whole idea that love as love comes to you it can be rejected as, as someone expresses love for you you can you can put your hands up and push it away and this is what we miss in this passage that when jesus goes to his hometown when jesus arrives on the sabbath to go and preach and teach in the synagogue what jesus is doing he is coming to love his people He's coming to give himself to his people. And we read over it because it seems like an introduction when we see that the first time. Uh, and uh, and uh, the feed is apparently a little bit quiet. So if you want to turn up, sorry. Uh, as, you see, as you see Jesus arriving in verse 1, you've got to see that it's the arrival of love. Ruben, so you've been reading this passage really well this past week and very slowly. And if I were to ask you, you could probably just start to tell me the first words. It says, he went away from there and came to his hometown. Can you see who's doing the action there? It is he, Jesus, went away and he came to his... It doesn't happen. Oh my goodness, I found myself in my hometown. No, deliberately and intentionally he went. He chose to go to his hometown. Now we know who's in his hometown. 
who is in his hometown. It is the people that came to find him earlier in chapter 3 and to say to him, Jesus, you've got to come home because you're crazy. Jesus, we have made up our minds about who you are. You're off your mind. You've got to come home. And Jesus, well, he rejected their madness at that point because it was simply not true. But yet Jesus deliberately chooses three chapters later, and I don't know how much time elapsed between these two events, to go to them nonetheless. Nonetheless. If you're listening to this, you're not a Christian, you're watching this stream today, would you understand that Jesus is coming to you today in spite of the fact that you've held all kinds of opinions about him in the past. You've rejected him, you've called him mad, bad, wicked, deranged, delirious. Uh, you, you, have, you have had all kinds of titles that you've bestowed on Jesus. And Jesus today comes to you again, deliberately and intentionally, to say to you, but here I am nonetheless. Here I've come to seek you out. Here I've come to present myself again to you in my love. The question is, what will you make of him? Christian, you might be so used to this message that you easily miss this. But as time goes on, we build in our minds a caricature of who we think Jesus is. And so we somehow, we somehow get things messed up and muddled in our minds. And this has happened throughout history. We'll, we'll, look, uh, we'll look today at the incarnation and the two natures of Christ in our 4 p.m. study. Uh, and, and they will see that throughout history, people have battled with this idea, how can God take on human flesh? How did God, how was God able to do it? And does it mean that, that Mary was the mother of God? Is that even possible? And, and we sort of, all of a sudden, just try and dilute these things so it's understandable and comprehensible to us. And so we divide the two natures of Christ. Well, we say, well, he's, he's man. Some religions build an whole ideology around the fact that Jesus definitely isn't God. He's just a very special man. Uh, and others, others say, no, no, he's not man at all. He's, he's just a mere man. He's actually just looked like man. To we get muddled about who this Jesus is. And so we don't know how to respond to this Jesus. The Bible wants to make it very clear to us who this Jesus is. This Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. It is God the Son, the Word, the Logos, that has always existed with the Father and the Holy Spirit, that deliberately left heaven. This passage tells us he went away from there to come to his hometown. Jesus makes intentional decisions to take on human flesh, to, to come into our world when Jesus was conceived in the virgin womb of Mary, it is God, the second person, that deliberately at that moment comes into and takes on human flesh in order to come to you, in order to come and stand in front of you so that God that is invisible will become visible and tangible to your very senses so that you can see him and touch him and hear him. God took on flesh because he loves us. That's why he did this. So please don't make this, Christian, in your mind, 
just a doctrine, just a dead platitude that we sort of say, oh, God became flesh in Jesus Christ, and we sort of move on. That was his act of love, that the incarnate God took on human form forever, permanently. There is now a man in heaven seated at the right hand of the Father, and he did this for you. The, the person who created the entire universe is the one that submitted to being flogged and beaten and mocked and scorned and crucified on the cross in order to pay for your sin as a man because you've sinned as a man against God. He went away from there and came to his hometown. He went away from heaven to take on human flesh for you. God is a communicating God. When he presents his love, he's very clear about this. He goes uh, to, the, to the synagogue on the Sabbath, on the day that they would expect to hear from God. He, he goes to them presenting himself truthfully and fully as who he is. He's not hiding like Charles Schultz behind a computer screen in his desk and just always looking and too, too ashamed to stand up. No, he comes and he presents himself. And he presents himself as he picks up the scriptures. And as we know he did in the Old Testament, in the synagogues, he picks up the Old Testament prophets and he shows them that he is him that is being prophesied in these prophecies. And he's calling them through affectionate, deliberate, intentional preaching to do what? To repent. To repent of their unbelief and to put their faith in God's Messiah. And then when people say, yes, we put our faith in God's Messiah, then Jesus steps forward and says, I am he. Put your faith in me. Can you see the tender Jesus going to Thomas after his... Thomas is doubting. And Jesus in his endearing, condescending love stoops down to Thomas and says, Thomas, it is me. Touch my wounds and you will see it is me. Jesus is communicating his love to us. He's not ashamed to tell us that he loves us. And he's not ashamed, he's not afraid of the cost of sharing with us that he loves us. And the question is, will we reject his love? Will we reject his love? That's unfortunately what follows. The town decide through groupthink that they uh, took offense at him. And Jesus, uh, and it's an enigmatic response that he has in uh, verse 4, he replies, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. What do we make of that statement? Well, my understanding of it is, and others have other opinions about it, it is Jesus just simply acquiescing what they've been saying all along. He's quietly just saying, I know what you're thinking. A prophet isn't honored in his hometown. That explains to you why you're not honoring me. And that's the syllogism that you're using. That's the, the sort of understanding that you put over the fact that he's come back. He's certainly doing some authoritative things. He's preaching with real passion. Man, he's got some authority when he's preaching. There's no doubt about the miracles that's happened. But, you know, we're not, we know him. We're not going to do too much. We're not going to submit to him and worship him. And Jesus almost gentleman-like says, Okay, so you've decided not to give me any honor. Yeah, it is as it says. Not in the Bible. It's just a phrase that people were saying at the time. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. A prophet isn't honored in his own hometown. 
That, that's what you will use to, to disregard me. In face of all the evidence of my authority, of my power, of my love, of my wisdom, of my nature, in, in spite of all of this, you will go with the old wife's tale, with a little saying that people say, that's what you'll believe. He's simply just stating back to them their own foolishness, their own small-mindedness, their own narrow-mindedness. And I implore you, if you're listening to this, do not make the same mistake. It is just small-minded. It is, it is just, it's, it's illiberal to, to just say, well, people are saying Jesus is crazy. It was all a myth. It's just made up. It's legend. It was a deranged people that came over. They hid his body. They, you believe all of this nonsense. You'll believe anything if you do that. <laughs> no. Jesus is not pushy in that way. He has presented himself to his people. He's come back to find them, his hometown, second time. And he presents himself clearly, affectionately, intentionally, again to them in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And they individually each have to make up their mind how they will respond to him. Some of them respond to him in faith. It says that a few were healed that day. But, but the tipping point, the culture, the zeitgeist of Nazareth on that day was, no, he's just a prophet that won't get any honor in his hometown. And we let him move on. It's fine. And what does Jesus do? He leaves. That's his response. He just leaves. He, he heals a few people, of course, but... He leaves and he went about among the villages teaching. And that's the risk that you face as you're confronted with Jesus this morning, whether an unbeliever or a believer. Will you stay in your small-minded, narrow-minded idea of who Jesus is, that is the result of groupthink around you? Or will you intentionally look at the facts and look at the Bible and listen to Jesus himself and make up your mind about who he is for yourself? It's interesting what happens. Um, the people reject him and Jesus, it says, he marveled because of their unbelief. It's a difficult word to translate. It's not like he was surprised by, oh, my goodness, I thought they'll, they'll believe. It was, you could almost see the expression in his face. It's just like, yeah, that's true. You just don't not, you do not believe in me. Could it be that people around them were saying familiarity, familiarity breeds content? contempt. Could it be that the old wives' tales are much stronger than the truth of the second person in, in, in the flesh standing in front of them? It was just the, 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 the measure of our entrapment must have unsettled Jesus as he just looked at this whole village just going, no, you're not it. He was astonished. He was surprised. No, he was shocked seeing the reality, the horror of their unbelief, of their sin. He was grieved like the Holy Spirit is when we sin against him. Well, it should not have come as a surprise. It wasn't a surprise to Jesus. Of course it wasn't because he was preaching and he would preach from the Old Testament. And most likely he would have preached from Isaiah. And let's for a moment imagine ourselves preaching him standing in his home to preaching from Isaiah 53. And he says to uh, the, the, the um, Pharisees, they hand me the scroll and they give him the scroll of Isaiah and he unfolds it and he rolls it all the way out to chapter 53 and he gets down there to verse 2 and 3 and, and then it says, um, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Because this is the prophecy about Jesus. Isaiah 53 carries on to say that he was, uh, he was crushed for, or pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It is the prophetic text that tells us about Messiah Jesus that would come. This was 500 years before he came. And there, as he is being presented to his people, when they reject him, they actually prove that he is who he said he is. That's what makes it so tragic and so sad, but yet so sa satisfying, so conclusive. He comes to his own town, the people are doing best. They do exactly what the prophets said. They despise and they reject him. And if they were to stand still for a moment, perhaps those few people that were healed that day, they saw that everyone despised him. And they thought, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, he's, could, could this be him? And they start looking through. They start thinking, he's right in front of me. And they, they reflect on the words that he's been preaching to them. And they reflect on who he is. And they start to realize that, could this be him? And then they go to him in absolute desperation, but in a strange measure of faith. They just, like the woman that was bleeding, just touch his garment because they were desperate. And Jesus turns and he heals them. And as he turns and he sees them and they see him, the crowd disappears. They're all confused. They're not sure what's going on. You look at him and say, it's him. It's him. This is the Logos, the second person of the Trinity. In the flesh. It's him. That is, they can say what they want, but you saw his face. And you saw, you felt his power go into your body as you were healed. And, and that small step of faith as you suspended your ears, or your, 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 your thinking just for a moment, as you just looked at who he is, as you looked at him, you saw it's him. Jesus healed a few people there. We should not be confused about this passage when it says, and he, was, he could do no mighty work there except to heal a few people, as if Jesus' miracles are limited by our lack of faith, that he, his miracles only extend to the, to the effect of our faith. The easiest way to make that argument is, is just to say, remember the storm? From the, the storm? They did not show any faith. There's no faith to speak of on that little boat. In fact, there's just accusation. Jesus is sleeping. They wake him up and they immediately accuse Jesus. Oh, do you not care for us? You're sleeping. We're dying. You should help take a, take a paddle and row. We're dying over here. Jesus didn't need, didn't need any faith to make the storm cease. There's no faith involved. In fact, he rebukes them for the fact that they have no faith. Jesus is not limited in his miracles to our faith. But what is Jesus limited by? If Jemima were here, she would have told us Jesus is limited by his own nature. Jesus is righteous. And where people are acting in unbelief, where they are rejecting his lordship, he is not a magician. He is not a freak show that people just come and look at because look at his tricks. Look at what he can do. Oh, that convinced. Oh, I'm really perplexed. He knew my name. Oh, wow. Hmm, that's pretty impressive. No, no, no. Jesus wasn't there to just draw a crowd with his sleight of hand, with his quick tricks. No, no, no. I'm the son of God. I've come to preach with authority to you. To prove who I am, your sins are forgiven. Stand up, take your mat and walk. To prove who I am, you are religiously defiled, unable to meet with the Lord's people. Let me cleanse you and your dirt comes to me as I clean you. Jesus did the miracles in the context of his mission. 
I am God in the flesh that's come to liberate you from your small-minded groupthink. And that's why he didn't do those miracles there. He's not a magician, not a, a magic trick worker. He's the son of God. And if he will not be known as the son of God in belief, he leaves. And so that is my appeal to you today, Christian or non-Christian. Submit to King Jesus. If you've been in a pattern even this day as a Christian brother or sister, where you thought God is not for me, he's against me, or I'm lonely, I'm a spiritual orphan, there is no power for me in God, I'm here on my own, sitting in my desperate situation, he doesn't love me, he doesn't care for me, can you please repent of that? That is groupthink. And you're leaning your ear into the society around you to say God seems to be absent. God is alive and he is working and he's working in this situation, in this world at this very moment. None of the events that's taking place in any sphere of society or industry is not what he has planned and foreordained. He has it perfectly in his hand. Why? Because he's turning the world upside down so that we can see his son, the Lord Jesus, for who he really is. Please do not wait until the day when you find it. Oh, yeah, hang on. That's who he is. No, that's too late. You want to be opening your eyes now and say, I can see people in desperate situations turning to Jesus in faith and dependence and Jesus healing them and Jesus restoring them and Jesus uh, liberating them. I'll close uh, and then uh, we'll carry on with the rest of the service. Uh, there is a moving story life story that i want to draw your attention to and the link will be on the whatsapp after this it is of uh, of lynn large who was an nhs uh, nurse for her entire life uh, she's now retired uh, and uh, she uh, became a midwife uh, and she became a midwife after having an abortion herself uh, and she became a christian later on in life uh, and she gives testimony on this video on how the Lord, when she became a Christian, liberated her from the guilt and the shame that she felt because of the abortion. She was liberated. And you look at her as she speaks. And you can see a, a, a woman that is, that's, been, that's been freed from a burden that was weighing her down. You can see that she loves her Savior that's come to take this burden. She's desperately sad about what she's done. She counted the years. She said he would have been 43 years today. She, she knows that she has taken a life. But she's known, she knows that her Savior has liberated her from the guilt and the shame of her sin. And you look at her and you can see that her life has windows. She looks out. She has hope. <laughs> that, is, that is one individual that has received a healing that will continue to, 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 to echo in eternity forever. Will you come and lay your burden down? Come back to the second person of the Trinity, to Jesus himself, not rejecting his love, but accepting it. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we, we know that you love us. At least we, we can say that we know that you love us because the Bible tells us so. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You gave, you sent your only son. When, when we receive your son uh, as our sacrifice, we receive a gift of your love, Father, for us. And we ask that we will not be like his hometown on that day, 
so familiar with Jesus and so familiar with our muddled mind when it comes to the Trinity, thinking of the Father as the Old Testament God and Jesus as the nice one and the Holy Spirit as the one that gives us goosebumps. No, this is God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit that from eternity has chosen to come and redeem the elect, his family. And then to give through his Holy Spirit them the faith to trust in the Son's sacrifice on their behalf so that they can come home to the Father's embrace. So Father, we pray that we won't be standing around scratching our chin, thinking and trying to make up a mind about who you are. Would you just overpower our senses knowing that God is love and he's loved us in Jesus Christ. He's taken our sin upon himself and he's promised life eternal. Human flesh to redeem it, to renew it. It is the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. That moment that you were immaculately conceived in the virgin womb, that is when God drew and draw, uh, drew and typed and wrote and did everything to get himself into the very creation that he has made. He took on human form. And he united himself with our plight, with our situation. He did not stand far off. You were born as one of us and you suffered like all of us would have had to. But you paid the penalty fully and completely. We love you, Father. We love you, Lord Jesus. We love you, Spirit of God. We love you, God. Please come. Take our faith and, and cause it to flourish. Cause it to fly in order to bring life to a world that is trapped in small-minded, narrow-minded thinking especially thinking about you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.